0: God, that is our prayer, that you would speak to us today by your word, not in some audible sense where we hear your voice, not in some mystical sense where we feel uh, something that changes us, but that we would see with our, our eyes, understand with our minds, that we would know as we read your word, these are your words given to us to change us. These are not given to us for um, our own uh, pleasure to just learn things and then move on. They're given to us so that we would see, savor, and be sanctified, be saved, and be transformed. So, Father, we we come before you and we we pray that last song. All of the songs that we offer to you, they are prayers, adoration, affection, petition, understanding a promise of pardon. But, Father, that last song is a plea from our hearts. If you do not speak to us from your word, we will be left to our own devices. We will be lost. So we need you to speak. Speak now, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, and while you are turning to Habakkuk chapter 2, I don't know if you have had this experience that I have had. Uh, It is a terrible experience, and it is one that I felt I could share with you uh, before we dive into this passage. Uh, So I was at Disneyland with my family. We were getting off of Splash Mountain. Uh, There's a whole other story with Splash Mountain and my, my son and my daughter wanting to go on it, but that's another story for another time. Some of you know it. We were on Splash Mountain, we go, we enjoy it, and you know how they take those pictures as you're going down the, the huge drop, they take pictures? Well, they took our picture, and as you get off the ride, you exit, and there's this lobby area where you can look and you can see all of these different photos, there's just screen after screen after screen of the log that's going down the waterfall, and there's you know, four or five or six people in that log, and you just kind of scan for your picture, you want to see your family making crazy faces, having a great time. So I'm scanning, and I'm looking, and I'm going, wow, they looked crazy, wow, they look like they're having fun, and just quickly scanning, and I remember scanning over one picture, and I just thought, wow, that lady looks like she was in a lot of pain or experiencing something crazy, and uh, just she looks crazy, and so I just keep moving on. And then you kind of circle back around, where's my picture? And then you realize, this is the moment that I had, where's our picture? And Chelsea goes, it's right there. And I look, and the individual that I thought was the crazy woman who was terrified and struggling to enjoy the ride. Turned out to be me. I didn't see myself in this photo. I just glanced by, and I thought, somebody crazy's uh, in that picture. And then I realized, upon further review, that's me. And oh my word, I don't like the way that I look in that picture. I don't know if you've had that experience, but for me, it's easy in those moments to just glance at something and not realize that you're there, to realize that you are in that picture. This morning, I believe the same thing is possible. We can go through the book of Habakkuk. We can go through and we can see, specifically this morning, we're going to see God pronouncing five judgments upon Babylon. He's going to pronounce judgment and curses upon Babylon for all that they've done. And we can easily read it and say, Babylon is terrible. I can't believe they would do the things that they're doing and gloss over it so much so that we forget we are actually here as well. We do the same things as Babylon is doing. So I don't want us just to go straight to our own hearts. I want us to see the text, historically understand it for what uh, Habakkuk would have understood and the original audience would have understood. But I also don't want to glance so quickly that we don't see ourselves. I want to examine our own hearts as we go through this text to see where the seeds of sin reside in our own hearts. You remember the book of Habakkuk. Throughout our study, we've started chapter one. Habakkuk is uh, lamenting before God. He's saying, God, why are you allowing your people, Judah, to be involved in all of this wickedness? God, why are you waiting? How long are you going to wait? What are you doing? And God says, I actually have a plan, and I'm going to bring Babylon in to discipline you, to discipline my people. That brings about, after God's first response, that brings about Habakkuk's second lament. Okay, God, thank you for responding But I don't like the answer to the question that I asked you. I don't like your resolution to our problems as Judah. I would actually prefer Babylon not to be involved in this. So God, I don't like your response here. I don't like the answer. How can you use Babylon, who is so depraved, so wicked, how can you use such a wicked people to judge us less wicked, Judah? So this is... God's second response, we looked at the beginning of it last week. God, first, he says in this second response, you have to trust me. You have to trust me. The the righteous will live by faith. You have to trust what I'm going to do. But secondly, he's going to explicitly tell Habakkuk in this section this morning, I'm not going to let Babylon get away with this. I'm going to use Babylon to discipline you, Judah, my people, And then I'm going to take that rod of discipline, as it were, and break it over my knee. God's first answer was, I'm going to judge Judah. And then his second answer is, I'm going to judge the people that I'm using to judge Judah. So this morning we pick it up in chapter 2, verses 6, all the way through the end of the chapter. We're going to finish chapter 2 this morning as we see five different categories of sin, five different curses and pronunciation of woes, of cursing upon Babylon for these five different categories of sin. Would you read it with me? Habakkuk chapter two, verses six through 20. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations and the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you're sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, So as to look on their nakedness, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. And now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and to all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts even in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone arise. And that's your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all inside. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Father, we desire for that to be true of us, that we would be silent before you. And silence before you isn't just speechlessness. It's a posture of humility. That says, God, you're God and I'm not. And I bow in reverence and awe before you as my king, as my sovereign, as my ruler, my creator, and as my just judge. So I bow myself before you and I plead with you, have mercy. God, I pray that you would have mercy upon us and give us grace as we dive into this text this morning that we would, yes, we would see Babylon, we would see Judah, we would see Habakkuk, we would see the way you respond and then we would press into that to even see ourselves. God, reveal to us the sinfulness of our own sin. It would be so easy to look and say, we haven't done any of the things that Babylon has done. And yet, the seed of what they are doing resides in every single human heart. May we not be so prideful as to say, This is beyond me or above me. This is something that I would never be a part of. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give grace, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning, that we would see Christ as the only source of forgiveness, of mercy of pardon, and of soul satisfaction. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen. This morning we are going to see five categories of sin for which Babylon will be judged. Five categories. They're all under those headings of woe. Woe is just a pronunciation of a curse. Cursed are those who do this. And God is speaking to Babylon. They are cursed in who they are because of what they've done. And they all fall under this beginning, this opening line in verse 6. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? All these these nations, all these peoples, all who have been affected by Babylon, who have seen, just like Habakkuk was saying, we know who they are, we know they're evil, we know what they've done. And God says, all of those who have seen what they've done, they're all going to gather together and they're all going to say these pronunciations together. They're going to take up a taunt song against them, mockery and insinuations against him. Now, those three words, taunt song, mockery, and insinuations they are all found in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6. I want to read the verse to you. Proverbs 1, 6, the exact same Hebrew words are used there. They're translated differently. You'll hear them. So in Habakkuk, it is taunt song, mockery, and insinuation. And in Proverbs 1, 6, it is to understand a proverb, a figure, The words of the wise and their riddles. Proverbs, figure of speech, and riddles. So this isn't only just mocking and taunting. This is taunting in a poetic way that has a proverbial, riddle-like essence to it. There's a lot of um, speaking forth a question that has an obvious answer. There's a lot of beauty and poetry in what God is saying here. So God says we're all going to grab Uh, The nations together, we're going to stare at Babylon's iniquity, and we're all going to speak riddles and figures of speech and pronounce woe and judgment upon them. One commentator says it this way, it might appear beneath the dignity of God to embarrass the proud before the watching world. That's exactly what God's doing here. But a part of his reality as God, as the God of history, includes his public vindication of the righteous and his public shaming of the wicked. His glory before all his creation is magnified by the establishment of honor for the humble and disgrace for the arrogant. In this case, the shame of Babylon shall be as extensive as all of its conquests, every single one of them. All those nations conquered by Babylon shall join in the mockery. Even the tiniest of nations shall rehearse these stains without fear of reprisal. So God is going to say, let's gather together and let's stare at sin. Let's stare at depravity. And let's call it what it is, that it is worthy of judgment and a pronunciation of woe over them. So what are these five categories? Number one, the first category that God condemns is that of stealing. Stealing. This is verses 6 through 8. This is just simple injustice of taking things that do not belong to them. Babylon took things that did not belong to them. Middle of verse 6 all the way down through verse 8. Woe to him who increases what is not his. So he gathers and increases what is not his. This is just being a simple thief. This is taking something that does not belong to you. And I love how God asks the question, for how long? How long is this going to happen? Even God himself is saying, how long? A question that Habakkuk had said earlier in chapter one. And God gives the answer right away in verse seven. How long is he going to make himself rich with loans? The creditors will rise up suddenly. So how long is it going to take before someone steps in and stops those who are oppressing and stealing from others. How long is it going to take? And God says, Suddenly, without warning. This beautiful tension between God waiting for people to repent and God bringing just punishment to the wicked. Judgment is coming, and it's coming without warning. You won't know when it's coming. God is saying to Babylon, You're not going to know. Suddenly it comes. Your creditors will rise up suddenly. Those who collect from you, will awaken, and you will become plunder for them. So you plundered them, and you will now become plunder for them. They're going to take back. There's beautiful poetic language in this. When my Bible says, will not your creditors rise up? That word, your creditors, is a word in Hebrew that means those who bite you. So Babylon, you were biting and devouring others, and now God says those that you devoured are going to come back and are going to bite you. They're going to bite you. The victim now becomes the victor. One commentator says it like this. I love this. The message of reciprocal judgment should sober up the sentimental outlook of modern civilizations. Listen to how this is described. If each person exacting excessive interest of debtors would consider that in God's perfect timing, he will receive precisely the same treatment that they inflict, he might be led to repentance. Repentance. If politicians and commanders of military forces accustomed to functioning in brutal, ruthless ways would understand that they and their people will one day receive the same treatment at the hands of those that they oppress, a genuine crying to God for mercy in a context of repentance might become more frequent. And then I love this line. While the mills of God may grind slowly, they grind exceedingly fine. In other words, although the final balancing of the scales of justice must await eternity, time even now will show a greater equity than might at first have been imagined. God says to Habakkuk, I see the despicable nature of Babylon. I see their wickedness on display. I see their sin, and I am going to punish them. I'm going to use them to judge and to discipline you, Judah. But then I'm going to turn right back around, and I'm going to punish them. By the way, this tells us two things. Number one, God hates Sin, God hates sin. God cannot stand sin, and of course he cannot. He's the holy God who is sinless, and sin is a personal offense against him because sin is going against what he has said as our creator. Sin is basically saying, God, I wish you were dead, and I wish I was God. Your rules stink. My rules would be better. So sin is an offense. It is personally attacking God. It is, as one theologian says, cosmic treason. So God cannot allow sin to just exist rampantly. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. He cannot just say, okay, fine, pardoned, forgiven. He has to punish sin. The second thing that this teaches us, this entire passage teaches us, God is going to punish Babylon. That means though God is using Babylon, he's not forcing them to do anything sinful. If he was forcing them then when God comes in judgment to them to say, you are going to be punished for what you've done, they could cry out, we didn't do it, you forced our hand. We didn't want to do it, you forced us to do it. But since God is bringing punishment to this people group, and God is just, and God is right in all that he does, he's good in all that he does, and he's holy, then he will not bring unjust punishment to somebody who doesn't deserve it. So if he's punishing Babylon, then that means they deserved it. And if they deserve it, that means that God, though he is using them, to bring discipline to his own people, he's not forcing them to do anything. They are not robotically being used by God. So the first category, God says, I hate this and I'm going to judge it, is stealing. Verse 8, you've looted many nations and all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and to all of its inhabitants. This category ultimately deals with the way that they viewed their money, their finances, how they were gathering, what they were gathering. Listen to Proverbs 28, verse 8. And Just as we go through this, ask in your own heart. Do any of these reside in your own heart? Does the seed of greed reside in your own heart? Proverbs 28, verse 8. He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. Proverbs 22, verse 16, He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 13, verse 11, Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. You could read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-11, through 11, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. We haven't brought anything into this world. We should be content with what we have. Uh, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, I just I plead with you. Examine your own heart. I think the coronavirus is an amazing time to examine where we place our hope and trust. Are we trusting in our 401k? Are we trusting in our finances? Are we trusting in our jobs? Are we trusting in money? Are we desirous of money to amass more so that we can have more, more, more? I think all of us have that propensity. And I believe all of us should have Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9 as our heart's prayer every morning when we think about finances. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 7 through 9, two things I've asked of you, O Lord. Don't refuse these before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me and give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that's my portion that I might not be so full that I deny you. I I don't want so much money that I think I'm self-sufficient on my own. And don't give me so little that I would be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. God, give me enough. As Jesus would say, give us this day our daily bread. Give me me enough for today. Force me through what you are giving me and what you choose not to give me. Force me to trust you to provide every single day. Force me to do that, God. I pray that we would be a church that would be known for contentment, when it comes to finances, so that we wouldn't be like the Babylonians and steal in whatever myriad of ways we might be doing that, using others to be rich and wealthy. The second category that God condemns, not only stealing, the second category is self-glorifying security. And the first kind of leads into the second, self-glorifying security. This is ultimately trying to be so wealthy that you are completely independent of needing anything. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Uh, That's a play on words for dynasty, for for his house, uh, a physical building, but it's a play on words. The the word can be used for your dynasty, your reign, and and everyone that's going to come behind you and follow after you. You're getting evil gain. You're stealing for the purpose of what? To put your nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You want to somehow amass so much wealth and accumulate so much wealth that you are beyond uh, coming to ruin financially. You're unassailable when it comes to your finances. According to one of his inscriptions, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, said that one of the chief purposes for his strengthening of the walls of Babylon was to make an everlasting name for his own reign, his own dynasty, his own house. He also praised to his own god, Marduk, and he praised this, quote, "'Give us life for many generations,' Abundant prosperity, a secure throne, and a long reign. Grant as thy will. This is pure and simple covetousness for the purpose of saying, I can shelter myself and I don't need anyone. Verse 10, you've devised a shameful thing for your house, for your dynasty. You've cut off many peoples and you are sinning against yourself. The person who says, I want to be so rich that I don't need to worry about anything financially is the person who says, I'm going to make myself independent of God. Of course you're sinning against yourself because you're trying to disconnect yourself from God. You're sinning against yourself. So surely, and again, this is in verse 11, beautiful poetic language. The stone that makes up this dynasty, this house, the stone that makes up the house, the people that make up the dynasty are going to cry out from the walls. The wood that makes up the rafters are going to cry out from the frameworks. They're going to say, how dare you use me to become uh, independent? Proverbs chapter 15, verse 27. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, and he who hates bribes will live. Babylon thought that they were assuring the preservation of themselves, of their dynasty, of their name. But ironically, as they are trying to do that, they're laying a foundation for their own destruction. This is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. They lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence and takes away the life of its possessors. Self-glorifying security. Look at how amazing I am. All that I've done. That's what Nebuchadnezzar has said. He says that in the book of Daniel. Remember, look at the kingdom that I have made. Look at the dynasty that I have created. And God says in a moment, he turns him into that cow, eagle, beast, animal and says, let me show you how lowly. In an instant. Again, the coronavirus is a beautiful season to remind us that we have no security in anything. Our only hope, our only security is in God. Of course, we, we plan, we want to, Uh, be able to give our kids an inheritance. We are wise with our finances, but the way that we gain them must be above reproach, not only in the way we do it, but in the motivation behind it. And ultimately, if we ever get to a place where we do have a lot of money, we need to be very careful that it does not have us and that we are not secure in our money, but saying we're secure in God. God, if you take it all away, I'm still secure in you because you are all that I have and you're all that I need. The third category, not only number one, stealing, not only number two, self-glorifying security, you're just trying to be independent, but number three, the slaughter of the innocent, the slaughter of the innocent, this is innocent people, this is innocent animals, this is innocence, slaughtering the innocence, holding life as cheap, cruelty to those around you. This is verses 12 through 14, woe to him Who builds a city with bloodshed and found a town with violence. You have built your city, Babylon, only by conquering and killing and massacring others. We've talked briefly about how they would go in and massacre these people groups. They were violent people. Verse 13. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? You have been ruthless and your ruthlessness to gain and amass your nation, your people group. That ruthlessness, by it being judged, you're just going to be destroyed. So your violence has brought nothing but ultimately a, a vain toil and fiery judgment. Such ruthlessness, whether at the hands of Hitler, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Mao Zedong, or other dictators, will be necessarily judged by God. So God says, the way that you have been violent with your people and other people, I will judge. I will judge with fire. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 58, who is a contemporary. Remember, Jeremiah is a contemporary of Habakkuk speaking in the exact same time period. Jeremiah says this in verse 58 of chapter 51. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon will be completely raised and her high gates will be set on fire so the peoples will have toiled for nothing and the nations will become exhausted only for fire. It's the exact same thing that Habakkuk is saying. You have, you have ex- exhausted yourself, toiled, you have been striving after this dynasty, and I'm just going to destroy it all with fire. In an instant, it'll be gone. They have built and labored for no purpose. It's vain and it will end in judgment. But, verse 14, contrast that with God's glory. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, just like the waters cover the sea. This is just a magnificent verse. God says, you have tried through your sinful tactics, through your violence, you have tried to amass a dynasty that I'm going to just in an instant blow up in fire and brimstone. But my glory, my dynasty as it were, it will go on forever. And it won't just cover a certain piece of the world. It covers the whole earth just like the water covers the sea. This would be an amazing thing. Think of Habakkuk hearing God say this. My glory will fill the whole earth. Where does Habakkuk know God's glory resides? It resides in the temple. It doesn't reside outside of the temple. If you want to meet with God, if you want to be in God's presence, you go to the temple. If you want to be with him personally, you go to the Holy of Holies. His glory is not everywhere. And yet God says there is coming a day when my glory will fill the whole earth. It will be everywhere. It will be filled. Everyone will see and savor the glory of God. Oh, Babylon, you have tried in your own pride to amass glory for yourself, and you've sinned against yourself. I'm telling you, God says, I am going to bring glory for my name's sake, and nothing's going to stop it. These are quotations, actually, from Numbers chapter 14 and Isaiah 11. Numbers 14 Verse 21, indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of God. And Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, brother and sister, if you look around the world and you see violence and you see oppression, you see injustice, and you say, God, how long, just like Habakkuk has been saying, God says to you this morning, oh, there's a day coming. Wait, the just will live by faith, Wait, there's a day coming when all sin will be destroyed. All iniquity will be taken away. All violence and oppression will be judged and punished. And then my glory will fill the entire earth. And only my glory will be known, seen, and savored. This is an amazing reality. This is the big picture. This is God saying to Habakkuk, zoom out, recalibrate your understanding. You're stuck in time and space in this moment. But there's a day coming. When it's all gone, all the sin is gone and just God's glory remains. So he's telling Habakkuk, let that recalibrate. It's kind of like when you are doing a puzzle and you have to constantly be looking back to that puzzle top, the box top that has the picture. Where does this tiny piece fit in the larger picture? That's what God's saying. Look at the larger picture, Habakkuk, and see where the tiny piece of Babylon, though they think they're amazing and massive and glorious, they're a tiny piece of the puzzle, of my glory filling the whole earth. But they've slaughtered the innocent. They've slaughtered the innocent. Verse 15 continues that with the fourth category. Number one, God condemns Babylon for stealing. Number two, God condemns Babylon for self-glorifying security. Number three, God condemns Babylon for the slaughter of the innocent. Number four, God condemns Babylon for sexual immorality. God condemns Babylon for sexual immorality. Verse 15, woe to you who make your neighbors drink. You're forcing the people around you to drink and mix in your venom to make them drunk for the purpose of so as to look on their nakedness. Not only to uncover their shame, but this idea of looking upon their nakedness is not only dishonor and disgrace, but perversion, sexual perversion. And God says, verse 16, you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. And then you are going to make yourself drunk. You're going to drink yourself. You're going to make yourself drunk. And you yourself are going to be exposed in utter dishonor, in utter disgrace, and in shame. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. Just like you've been passing a cup to others to get them drunk, God's cup is going to come to you and you're going to drink it. And utter disgrace Utter disgrace. End of verse 16. Utter disgrace will come upon your glory. So you have this so-called just veil of glory, and I'm going to destroy it. Utter disgrace is going to come upon your glory. And that word, utter disgrace, is actually used only once. Only here in the Old Testament. It's almost as if Habakkuk has to make up a word to show the devastation of what's going to happen to Babylon. Utter disgrace will be coming upon you. This is a a cup in the Lord's right hand that's going to come around to them. Again, Jeremiah, contemporary of Habakkuk, writing in the same time for the same purpose. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29. I just encourage you to write that down. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 29. Talk about this cup. It's a cup that is filled not with poison or venom, but with God's holy wrath, with punishment against sin. It's a cup that has God's judgment inside of it. And as repulsive as wrath in and God may appear to some, we realize that God's wrath is not only just and holy, but if you fast forward to the New Testament, you see an unbelievable reality that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14, that that cup of God's justice and God's wrath is being given to Jesus. So If you you don't like the idea of God's wrath, if you don't like this idea of God having a cup Of punishment and of judgment against sin, then you have to also take that away from Jesus. Jesus drank the cup for us. There's a real, there's a reality of God's judgment that is waiting and hanging over our heads. Jonathan Edwards, very famous preacher, he would say it this way that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, that God is is angry with sin and with sinners and God holds us in his hands and it's as if we are hanging over the fires of hell and we're being held on just by the the string of a spider that makes a spider web. We're just dangling like a little spider over an open flame of the fires of hell. It's there. It already abides. John chapter 3 says that the, the wrath of God already abides on those who refuse his son. And so God says, You have forced others to participate in your iniquity and I have wrath that is in store for you. I have punishment that is in store for you. It's an unbelievable reality that Jesus in his kindness said, I'll drink that. I'll take that in the place of sinners. He drank that cup of God's fury down to the dregs and he became the savior of all who would renounce their own pride and violence and look alone Uh, to to look to him alone for salvation. Verse 17, God says, the violence that is done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Why Lebanon? Why not Jerusalem? I think because, again, this is poetic language, and Lebanon is known for its beauty. Remember, the cedars of Lebanon were regarded as the most amazing trees. Even the flag for Lebanon, it has the cedar on it. Uh, To this day, that's what they're known for. And so the cedars of Lebanon, beautiful. Uh, This would be kind of thinking of like the redwoods and sequoia for America. They're beautiful, and yet Babylon didn't care about beauty. Babylon didn't care about truth. Babylon didn't care about any of this. They did violence to Lebanon, destroyed Lebanon, and that violence will overwhelm you. What you did to them is going to come back to you. This is the age-old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What you have done, you will uh, receive a just due penalty. You, you reap what you sow. It's not only an Old Testament concept, it's in the New Testament as well, Matthew 18, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. We see this as well. That God will reward with just punishment every action of every sinner. The devastation, verse 17, of its beasts by which you terrified them. Now he brings in the animals. He says, you didn't even care about animals. This is Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, that a righteous man will be concerned about the welfare of animals, will take care of their own pets and the pets of others and the animals that they see. This is Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11. Remember when God, this is the very end of the book of Jonah, God says to Jonah, should I not have had compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand and much cattle, many animals. God says, I don't want to destroy the animals. They're beautiful. They're precious. I don't want to destroy them. Obviously, humans and animals are not the same. They're not in the same category. Humans are made in the image of God. They're completely elevated above animals. Animals don't have souls. Humans do. Humans are made in the image of God. Animals are not. But still, God calls out Babylon for a mistreatment of innocent people, whether it's innocent creation, whether it's innocent animals, or whether it's innocent humans. That leads us to number five. Category number five, not only do we have stealing that God's going to judge Babylon for, self-glorifying security, slaughtering the innocent, sexual immorality. But number five, and finally, serving idols. God is going to curse and judge and punish Babylon for serving idols. And it's very interesting because every single category, God has said, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But God breaks that protocol. God breaks that formula here. Verse 18, what prophet is the idol? If you drop down to verse 19, then he's going to say, woe to him. It's like a complete break in the protocol here, a departure from the formula. Why? I think it's because this is the foundational issue for all of the others. All the other sins find their origin in this issue, idolatry. We know this from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, this you know with certainty. No immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No immoral person or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater. So, immorality, impurity, and covetousness all find their root in idolatry. So I think that's why God breaks protocol here. He changes the way that he begins this stanza and this woe, this curse, by just going straight to the heart of the matter, as this is the foundational issue. What prophet, verse 18, is an idol when its makers carved it? Or an image? a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. This is God just saying, idolatry is foolish. Look at how he continues. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake to mute stones arise. This is your teacher, God says. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all inside of them. We say it a lot at CBC, but sin makes you stupid. It just makes you stupid. The more that you're in sin, the more stupid you become. So much so that you would carve an idol and bow down to it and worship it as if it could talk to you or even hear you. Idolatry is foolish. This is Jeremiah 10, again, contemporary of Habakkuk. Jeremiah 10, verses 14 through 15. He writes, every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by their idols. Their molten images are deceitful. There is no breath in them. They are worthless. They are a work of mockery. And in the time of their punishment, they will perish. It's just pointless. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 11 says the same thing. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they will be put to shame. Who's fashioned a God or cast an idol to no prophet? Behold, all of their companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them all together be put to shame. It might be very easy for us to say, how ridiculous is it to carve something out of wood, to carve something out of stone, to make something out of a, a piece of metal, and then to bow down and worship it? But the reality is we do that every single day. It's not a physical statue that we bow down in worship. I remember one of my kids uh, was struggling uh, with their attitude and uh, I sat them on their bed. They wanted something that one of their siblings had and they were crying. They were very angry and uh, sat them on their bed and this child who will just remain nameless at this point, um, I said to Ethan, I said, hey, Ethan, uh, you want something so badly. You want at this point, it was Chelsea's mints. Chelsea had these mints. She had this little box of mints, and Ethan wanted a mint. And Chelsea, they were hers. She had uh, gotten them fair and square on her own, and I said, it's up to her if she wants to give you one. She said, you know what, not right now. And I said, that's okay. Talk to her later about selfishness, but that's another issue. But I sat down with Ethan on his bed, and I said, hey, Ethan, do you remember 1 Kings chapter 18? He said, no. Like, I would know that. <laughs> he said, no. I said, 1 Kings chapter 18, remember... Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then he remembered the story. Oh, yeah, they were were, uh, fighting over whose God was real. we got Baal, we've got Yahweh, who's real. We talked about it. I said, who was Baal? Who were they worshiping? He said, a false god. I said, you're right. I said, do you remember what Baal looked like? He said, he was a big statue. And I said, what's that called? He said, an idol. And I said, Ethan, have you ever bowed down and worshiped an idol? And Ethan said, no, I've never done that. This was the high point of the moment for him because he thought, I'm off the hook. I have not fallen down on my face and worship a statue. I'm good. And I said, Ethan, do you know what? You and I worship idols every day. Probably the most confused look I've ever seen on his face. What? I said, Ethan, it's not a statue. It's when we want something so bad in our hearts that we would sin in order to get it. Idolatry is anything that replaces love for God with something that he has given as a gift, with something he made. Idolatry is taking the gifts that God has given and turning the gifts into our greatest focus and our greatest joy. Usually idols can be born out of just a a passion and a love for something or a fear for losing something or control and wanting to make sure that you don't lose something or you want to make sure that you keep it. Whenever a person's desire looks to the creature rather than the creator, They're guilty of idolatry, the exact same kind of foolishness that God's calling Babylon out for. It's that foolish. The gifts that God has given to us are amazing gifts, but they make terrible gods. If you turn money into a god, it will just let you down. You turn relationships into a god. You turn your kids into a god. You turn sex into a god. You turn glory and fame and notoriety into a god. You turn anything that God has given as a good gift to us Into a God, and it will undo you. And it is just as foolish as bowing down and worshiping a statue made of gold. So God says, Your idolatry is foolishness, and your idols aren't even real. But, verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Uh, I'm real, is what God is saying. You bow down and you worship these gods that can't even breathe, I'm real. I'm in my holy temple and all the earth will be silent before me. Just like your idols can't speak to you, you should be silent before me. You will be judged before me, or you will be pardoned before me. I'm in my holy temple. God is holy. God is holy. This is like the uh, verse in Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, uh, the psalm that we studied right before. It was our last Sunday together, I believe it was March 15th, in the library. It was our last Sunday together uh, before this whole season has been happening. We studied Psalm 46 that God is a refuge, a fortress for those who would run to him. He's our help in time of need, a very present help in trouble. But the refrain that keeps on happening in that psalm is be still and know that I'm God. Be still. Again, this doesn't mean you can't speak. You can be still and be silent spiritually while still speaking physically in the presence of God to say, I'm, I'm not God, you're God and I'm not. So Habakkuk had begun his dialogue with God in chapter one and then uh, through chapter two in an effort to understand the mysterious ways of a holy God with sinful people. Now at the end of chapter two, after asking two questions, two laments, and hearing two responses from God, He stands in the presence of God's holy temple, hushed in reverential awe. He may not have fully grasped all the implications of God's divine answer to his questions, and yet he stands assured of the abiding lordship and sovereignty of God over the whole earth. God's reminding him, I am king over all, and I am good, I'm holy. God's reminding him of his justice in prosecuting every single violator of God's holy law And God's reminding Habakkuk of his infinite mercy and granting life to anyone who would trust in him and in the provisions that he has promised for the sinner. Even in these curses that are given out to Babylon, these are curses that have yet to come. These are a gracious pronunciation of judgment is coming. Babylon, if you would have ears to hear, you could repent now and turn and trust in the Savior. Five categories of sin that Babylon struggled with, that I believe we all struggle with. Stealing, self-glorifying security, slaughtering the innocent, sexual immorality, and serving idols. Again, all of this teaches us that sin is serious, and all of this teaches us that sin will be punished. My friends, you can count on this truth. Every single sin that has ever been committed or will ever be committed, every single sin, whether in thought, in word, in attitude, or in action, every single sin, God will personally visit with divine, holy, and just punishment. Every single sin. The only question is, is that punishment going to be poured out upon you, as you do not turn from sin, as you cling to your own idolatry and say, you know what, my gods are better than the one true God. Or if you would hear his voice today, a gracious warning to say, wake up, judgment's coming, you don't know when, suddenly, remember verse 7, he says, suddenly it's going to happen. If you would trust in Jesus who bore your punishment, all of your sins will be punished but they will have been punished in Christ on the cross. Either you bear the punishment or you hide yourself in Jesus who bore it all for you. So how do we conclude chapter two? I want to conclude it by just three directions of the way that we would look at this point. Look outward, look inward, and look upward. Look outward. Number one, we begin by saying, look at the world around us, just like Habakkuk was doing. Look at the world. Look at America. Look at America. It's almost like God's speaking directly to America. I know he's not in these verses. He's speaking to Babylon, but it's almost like he's speaking directly to America. We're known for stealing. We're known for corruption in the government that steals. We're known for self-glorifying security. We're known for slaughtering the innocent. I mean, that's the entire abortion industry. We're known for sexual immorality and perversion. We're known for serving idols all over the place. This is America. So, as we look outward at those around us know two things number one the sin that we so hate around us will be punished it will be punished god will vindicate his holiness and his righteousness and that sin will be punished all five categories that we see even in america that it will be punished god's just he's holy but that should lead us as we look outward at the world around us brothers and sisters we have the hope of forgiveness That should lead us to the work of missions. That should lead us to the work of evangelism. That should lead us, even if you feel awkward in sharing the gospel, you shouldn't care at all about how awkward you feel knowing that there are people around you who are currently destined for God's wrath and do not know the hope that they can have in Christ Jesus. As we look outward, this should lead us to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. This should lead us to becoming fools for Christ's sake. For sharing Jesus as often and as explicitly, as graciously, as, compassionate, as compassionately as we possibly can. We need to plead with people to repent. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. We are ambassadors of Christ Jesus. We need to plead with people to repent and turn and trust in Jesus. So look outward, yes. But secondly, look inward. Look inward. See that these five categories are present in you. And ask God to help you see those things. Ask God to help you to repent. May it be our prayer that whatever it takes, God, please discipline me to bring me to a place where I would not be walking in these five categories any longer. God's giving wrath to Babylon, but God's giving discipline to Judah. God's not giving Judah wrath. He's giving discipline to them to correct them. And God can do the same for you. Hebrews chapter 12 says that discipline is God's, amazingly gracious gift to those who love him and who are pleading with him, turn me from sin. Whatever it takes, God, turn me. Turn me from sin. Plead with God today. Look inward and see where the seeds of these five categories of sin reside in your own heart and then plead with God for his gracious discipline to help cut away these sections of sin in your life before it becomes judgment and stops being gracious discipline. Look inward because if you do not turn from sin, Verse 16 of chapter 2, that cup that Habakkuk was talking about, that God spoke to Habakkuk about, that God has in his right hand, that cup of just judgment and punishment and wrath. If you do not turn and trust in Jesus, that cup is yours to drink. Remember, every single sin will be punished, either on the cross by Jesus, bearing the full punishment in hell or for us, uh, by bearing that punishment in its entirety, or it will be us in hell ourselves bearing the punishment. So look inward, but don't stop at looking inward. Look inward and see where that sin resides, but then immediately look upward to Christ. Look upward to Christ, who made an end to all of our sin, who never once lived out any of these sinful practices in action, thought, or attitude. Just think about it. Jesus is the exact opposite of all of these realities. Instead of stealing, Jesus doesn't hold anything back. He gives his life as a ransom for many. Instead of seeking his own glory, he empties himself and he takes the form of a slave and becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Instead of slaughtering the innocent, he is slaughtered for the innocent, for the guilty To, to as the innocent uh, sin bearer for the guilty. Instead of sexual immorality, he lives out beauty and holiness and purity as the spotless lamb without blemish and instead of serving idols he submits himself to his father in everything that he does he's the exact opposite of Babylon and yet the reality is he still drank that cup he's the exact opposite of everything we've studied about about Babylon this morning and yet he still graciously took that cup from his father and said I will drink the judgment that that is laying up for those that have sinned in wickedness I will drink it. He drinks the cup for us. An innocent, pure, holy, spotless individual dies the death of the guilty and drinks God's wrath for us. My friends, if you don't know that you have been covered by the righteousness of Christ, if you don't know that you're saved, if you don't know that if you were to die right now that you would stand before God and be covered in His beautiful, perfect holiness and forgiveness and pardon. If you don't know that, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to renounce your sin, to say, I'm done with these categories. I'm sick and tired of serving idols. And I want to turn and follow Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you today know that you are following him and that the seeds of these sins, these five categories still reside in your heart, don't just look inward, look upward, look at Christ. And remember him who made an end to all of your sin, who drank the cup to the dregs so that you and I could go free. And all of this should produce in us a heart of overwhelmed gratefulness, gratitude, and thanksgiving. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so powerful in pointing out our sin. It is so powerful in showing us, whether it's talking to Babylon And at the exact same time, talking to us, showing us our own sin, reminds us the the sinfulness of sin, the guiltiness of sin. It reminds us of the horrifying aspect of falling into the hands of your holiness as we are not holy people. And that points us to the, the gracious substitute, Jesus Christ. Oh, we love you, Jesus, because you first loved us and you gave yourself for us. Not because of anything we could do. All we did was live out these five categories of sin and then some. And you bore the punishment in our place. So God, we say thank you with hearts that are filled with gratitude and gratefulness for who you are and for what you've done. We love you and we offer you our thanksgiving now for being our perfect substitute, dying our death, rising again to newness of life and offering us full pardon and forgiveness. Jesus, we thank you now, and we pray it in your name. Amen.